So we're talking this afternoon about the sufficiency of Scripture. And that, that actually is one of the greatest questions, greatest questions of our era. It's one of the great questions that every generation of Christians has to answer. Is the Bible sufficient to handle all of life's problems? There was a big debate, um, was that 30, 40, 50 years ago about inerrancy? Incidentally, it's it's coming to us again to be dealing with inerrancy. But always the church has to answer the question about biblical sufficiency. Is the Bible sufficient to handle the problems we face? Now, you're here this afternoon and you have an answer to that question. You have an answer. We all do. Uh, maybe you say, well, yeah, absolutely. It's the word of God. It's sufficient. I hope that's what you say. But some of you perhaps um, have reservations right? maybe you've heard arguments about you know, from integrationist psychologists christian counselors who say that the bible is sufficient only insofar as it teaches about quote salvation issues salvific issues of life that's the way one author puts it these salvific issues of life so it's limited sufficiency to salvation alone these folks who mean well They argue that the Bible is sufficient to get us saved, but beyond that, God has not given his people a sufficient resource to guide them in every sphere of life. And because they sort of propose that the Bible is deficient in some ways, sufficient in salvific issues, deficient in other ways, they argue that we need to go beyond Scripture when it comes to the issue of soul care. Like the Bible is not sufficient to deal with the issues of the human soul. So we need to go beyond it and integrate into our view of Scripture the views of secular psychologists. That Those need to be integrated into the fabric of our soul care methodology. All right? That's one view. And my objective this afternoon, one, don't put anyone to sleep. Number two, to convince you that the Bible is actually sufficient for all of the soul care issues we face. And then number three, to reinforce most of you, I think, in your view that you already have. Of course, the natural default view of the Christian is, it's the Word of God. Of course, it's got all we need for life and godliness. So that's my hope, to convince you that the Bible is what it claims to be. It's sufficient. Not only that, it's superior uh, to the other options. And so if I am successful you will leave here convinced of that all right and also the other thing maybe three things i want to help you finish your counseling exam all right so number question number two is about the sufficiency of scripture on the theology exam so i'm going to give you a lot of information that i hope will help you write that exam okay so let me start by giving you a definition of biblical sufficiency when we say that the bible is sufficient What we mean is that God's written word, as contained in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, contains everything that we need to know in order to give him glory, to come to know him personally through faith, and to live a life that is pleasing to him. That's sufficiency. To put it in another way, the Bible contains all that we need to know God's will and to live a life that is pleasing to him which is really just a quotation of 2 Peter 1.3. What does 2 Peter 1.3 say? Someone have that memorized? You should have it memorized. 
You're a front row, man. Yeah, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. How do we know Jesus? Through the word of God. So we deduce there that scripture itself is sufficient to give us all that we need for life and godliness. Now, what exists outside of those two confines? Nothing. Life, godliness. Life encompasses all that you are, all that you could experience. The Bible then is sufficient. Wayne Mack put it this way. Make sure I'm there. We go. Wayne Mack put it this way: Scripture contains all the principles and practical insights that are necessary for understanding people and their problems. Finally, the Westminster Confession of Faith says: The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations or of the Spirit, rather, or the traditions of men. Now notice that first line. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence is found there. Okay? That is biblical sufficiency. Of course, none of us believe that biblical sufficiency means that the Bible has the instructions for you to fix your leaky faucet. Right? And the fact that we have to say that is almost ridiculous. Right? None of us believe that the Bible is a mechanic's manual. So the Bible doesn't teach you how to fix a leaky faucet, but what it does do is it helps you fix that leaky faucet or call the plumber uh, and respond to that issue in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what sufficiency claims. Okay. Now, that's our view. That's the Reformed, that's the historic view of the church. But there are some people who do not see it this way. So they oppose biblical sufficiency in the way that I've articulated it. For them, the Bible is sufficient for salvation, but not sufficient to provide all that is necessary for any Christian to live faithfully in God's world. So what they say is we need more. We need more than Scripture. So really, it's, it's, it's an argument that the Bible needs to sort of be helped along by integrating it with modern notions of psychology and soul care. And there are many who hold this view. This is the majority view, I would say. But just think about this in Scripture. The minority is usually in the right. All right, so this is the majority view, but biblical sufficiency is, I I will argue, and you'll see this, is the view of God himself. that's That's the side we want to be on. So to help you here, uh, I want to point out one advocate of integrationist uh, integrationism, um, one advocate of a modified or limited view of biblical sufficiency. And then I want to show you, show you his view, and then I want to show you what God says, and then you guys can sort of draw your conclusions in the end. 
This guy's name is Eric Johnson, formerly a psychology professor at Southern Seminary, and he's now the professor of Christian counseling at Houston Christian University. He's written a number of books. I just want to interact with one of them. It's called The Foundations for Soul Care, a Christian Psychology Proposal. And let me just preface this by saying I'm not going to present Dr. Johnson's positions in a fully orbed, robust way. I only have an hour, and it's 4.10. You're sleepy. I'm a little sleepy. It's not the time to do that. Um, so I'm not going to give his position in, in all of its glory. I mean, he's got a very thick book arguing his view. But what I want to do is just point out a few statements for him, from him that are a little less obvious, that require a little bit of discernment. And I want to pull them up so you can see them and we can sort of interact with what's wrong with that statement. Okay? In my view, these statements and the position that Dr. Johnson holds undermines the historic position of biblical sufficiency and undermines even the claims that Scripture makes about itself. Okay? So here's the first sort of quote or uh, statement from Dr. Johnson. He says, The sufficiency of the Bible regarding psychology and soul care means that the Bible is the Christian community's foundational psychology and soul care text. Amen. Amen. That's right. Because it amply communicates enough about the nature of God, human beings, and divine salvation that no other text is necessary for normal Christians to thrive psycho-spiritually. All right. There's some good and there's some bad. His view is that the Bible is sufficient for normal Christians. You see that? Now let me ask you. How many of you in here are normal? <laughs> well, in one sense, none of us are normal. What does that even mean? Like you know, that's not helpful uh, it doesn't really communicate much, uh, but it's a way, it seems, to kind of hedge from sh- limit sufficiency. But in another sense, we're all normal because we're all abnormal. We're all different. Think about 1 Corinthians 10.13. What does 1 Corinthians 10.13 teach us? The, the problems we face, the issues we deal with externally and internally are called common to man problems. Our hope in counseling and our confidence in counseling and discipleship is, look, there is no problem that's going to come to us that's going to surprise God or it's going to be essentially um, new under the sun. Right. So if you restrict biblical sufficiency to normal Christians, you get yourself in trouble there. Um, and it, it's just not really helpful because then you say, normal Christians, you've got a great book. And put it to work. But some of you out there, I'm not going to name any names. You're in trouble. And you need to go outside of the Bible to get help. You see that? Right. Yeah, there's yeah, there's something that will fill in the gap for Scripture. For Yeah. The normal people, Bible works for you. But it just doesn't work for everyone. Okay? So then the, the, the point there is that the Bible works for some people, but it doesn't work for all. Let me give you another quote. 
The Christian canon deals directly with psychological and soul care issues, albeit at a lay level. Christians, therefore, cannot ignore the Bible's teachings on these matters when studying human beings and caring for their souls without necessarily undermining their own system of thought and practice. Again, there's good... I mean, he's making some observations. Of course, the Bible deals directly with soul care, psychological issues. That's our argument. But notice he says, albeit at a lay level. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of that statement, lay level communicates to me a lack of sophistication. The caveat that the Bible is a lay level guide for soul care issues suggests that if things get too complicated the bible is just not sophisticated enough to help us so we therefore need to go somewhere to somebody who has professional level degrees we don't want to be just the layman in the pew trying to solve people's problems with a limited book okay now we don't believe that but that's what our brother, I think he's a brother. I think he means well. I think he just is, he's misguided here. All right, let me give you one more quote. God apparently wants his children to use their God-given minds to figure out how to build the best soul care models the world has ever seen to get as close as we can to the model that is in God's mind and heart. Implication, the Bible does not give us a sufficient model for for soul care. It gives us some of God's heart and mind regarding the human soul and human flourishing. But we are left to build the Christian model of soul care by going out to the world and getting their materials and blending it into the fabric of the Bible. And when we do that, that's when we get as close as we can to the mind and the heart of of God regarding the proper care of souls. Do you see that that limitation? And really it's an implication. And there are so many problems here, but rather than sort of drilling into all each of these, I just want to hit it at a high level. And I want you to always ask yourself, when you read something like that, always ask, what does this say about the Word of God? What is He actually saying about Scripture? And here, these three quotes tell us that at least in his view, the Bible is an insufficient guide for soul care because it's too simple to help God's people and it's only helpful for normal people. Again, whatever that means. Okay, do you have any questions about that? Are you are you tired of hearing about that? And I, I'm telling you, these are just sort of, these are ones where the problem is a little more tucked away and I just wanted to pull them out for you so you could see, so you've got your radar up when you're reading things like this, okay? There are some more obvious statements out there, but these are enough to get us um, sort of set the scene, as it were, for the opposition to sufficiency. Now, in contrast to that, let's look at what God has to say about His Word, okay? Let's do that. We'll start with the Old Testament. Why don't you flip over to the book of Deuteronomy with me? Of course, the question we're always asking is, asking is what... Does God say? And we're going to find that when it comes to the word, God's word, 
God has a lot to say. And the Bible makes some pretty staggering claims about itself. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'll read for you the first three verses. You read along with me. All that the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Verse 3, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And this last part is what I want you to see. That He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now what does that have to do with biblical sufficiency? You see anything there? It provides everything we need to know. It won't give you food. It won't give you bread. So you got to get your bread. That's true. And even the unbeliever without the scripture knows that he can go make some bread and figure out how to do bread. It'll give you everything besides bread that you need to live a life pleasing to him. That's pretty definitive. Man lives not by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh, out of the Lord. That's a very simple statement, but it's it has radical ramifications. Man, in order to navigate life, he needs food and then he needs the word of God. Right? Deuteronomy 8.3. Two things. Food and the word of God. It's a pretty open, shut case for me. Spiritual sustenance. The spiritual sustenance necessary for anyone to successfully navigate life in God's world comes from the mouth of God. Commenting on this verse, Eugene Merrill writes this, Beyond this provision for physical need was a more profound truth. He's talking about the manna that was provided. Namely, that spiritual benefits are immensely more important than physical ones. The bread that came from heaven, that is from God, symbolize something much more satisfying. The revelatory word by which God communicates His nature and purpose to humankind. This last line is what's most important. Physical life is sustained by the fruit of the earth. Spiritual life is sustained by that which comes from above. Now that seems to me to be saying the word of God is all the Christian needs to flourish spiritually in God's world, no matter if you're normal or not, right? I may be crazy, but that's that seems to be what God is saying. Psalm 119, 105. Who's got that memorized? You get a gold star if you do. Yes. Now, what would that have to do with biblical sufficiency? What do you think? I guess the word guides you. It guides you. It's a sufficient light so that you know how to walk through this dark world in a way that's pleasing to God. You don't need a brighter light. There's no deficiency in this light. You don't need to go out to 
you know, the, the secular atheistic psychologist and say, hey, look, my light is just not giving me enough. You've got what you need to honor the Lord, to please Him in the Word. Now, I think the greatest argument for biblical sufficiency in the Bible is Psalm 19. Psalm 19. You might want to turn there with me. All right, Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14. I put it up here because I think it's so vital. So we can all look at it. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And just remember, I'll remind you that in Psalm 19, uh, the psalmist is using all of these um, synonyms for the word of God. The law, the precepts, uh, the light, testimony, precepts, commandment. These are all synonyms for the word of God. So the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now that's just two verses, two verses of Psalm 19. It tells us what it is, what the Word of God is, and what it does. So let's look at that together, okay? What it is. First, the Word of God is perfect. Perfect. Meaning that it's complete and lacking nothing. It doesn't need the help of anyone else. It's sufficient. It's all all that God wants to communicate to His people at a particular point in history is communicated to Him through His Word. Now, we believe, of course, that the canon is closed. We're not expecting more revelation. So that means to us is that in the Bible, we have, that, we have all that God wants us to know to live a life that's pleasing to Him. So the Bible we currently have, then, is God's perfect word to us. It's called the law, the law of the Lord. The word in Hebrew means to point, Torah, right? It's you point at something. It has to do with God's instructions or directions. And so when you bring that together, we can see that the Bible is God's perfectly complete direction to his people in this world. Psalm 19, verse 7a. That's just half of a verse. But notice what the rest of the verse says. This is its effect. It restores the soul. We are two-part beings. We have an inner man and an outer man. Physical and spiritual inner man. And the Bible is able to restore the soul, meaning that it's able to transform the soul and bring it back to health. When we talk about soul care, this is what we're talking about. And God is saying, look, this book that I've given you, my law, my word... It's perfect. And if you use it properly, it will restore the soul. I think that statement alone actually is enough to close the case. It tells us that God's word is the perfect instrument for restoring and sustaining the human soul. 
Now, of course, we believe the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God. So, the Bible is the Word, the law of the Lord then is perfect, restoring the soul. That's just verse 7a. Look at the second part of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the Word of God is sure. It's called the testimony of the Lord here, pointing out that the Bible is the trustworthy and reliable witness to the nature and the will of God. And because that, and because that's true, it's able to make wise the simple. You see that? It makes wise the simple. What is wisdom? Wisdom is skill for living. Just put it simple, you know, very simply. Wisdom is skill for living. The simple in the wisdom literature, they're the naive. They're the they're the person who doesn't know who don't know how to navigate life in God's world. The Bible is able to make the the simple wise. It's able to give anyone skill for life. It gives this simple person the wisdom he needs to navigate God's world in a way that's consistent with the will of God. Okay, next, verse 8. The word of God is right. It's right. That is, it's ethically proper. It's always just. It's always upright. The commands of God are always in perfect conformity to standards of justice. And they're called precepts in verse 8. Precepts look to God's word not as suggestions, but as commands, orders, instructions. It's the military leader giving a charge to his men. And it's always what it should be. He doesn't make mistakes. And as a consequence, the word of God is able to do what? What does it do? The precepts of the Lord are right, doing what? Rejoicing the heart. What is the heart? It's the inner man. What are some problems uh, that people have in the inner man? Which are some of the issues that people have? Inner man issues. Depression. Anxiety. Go ahead. Pride. Stress, fear. And all of these are issues that we're able to identify and we're increasingly, you guys are being increasingly trained to do that more and more. But one of them, the chief one probably we see, maybe not most often, but we see very frequently is depression. And here's clearly, the word of God is able to rejoice the heart. What does that mean? <laughs> it gives you hope. It turns your sorrow into joy. This is what God is saying. Look, this book I've given you is able to do this. It is able to come into someone and cause their inner man to rejoice, no matter how down they are. Think of David. David's the guy writing this psalm. Think of some of the low points in David's life. He was a man who knew that the word of God could do this. Right? The Word of God can bring joy to the downcast. 
I mean, just imagine us saying, well, I don't know, the Bible just, boy, I don't know if it can handle this situation. They are so down, so discouraged. I, we, we need to go somewhere else. And here God is saying, my word is able to rejoice the heart. It's able to come to the downcast, the bipolar, the discouraged, depressed, and bring joy. No caveats here. It's a direct and full statement. And whenever the individual obeys God's word, because it is perfect, sure, and right, it's just, whenever the individual obeys God's word, he will get the pleasure of having honored God And when you do right, Genesis 4, feelings follow. If you do well, the Lord said to Cain, will there not be a lifting up? Your countenance will rise as you do what you know you need to do. So the scripture then is perfect, sure, and right. It restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart. And then last line in verse 8, the word of God is pure. It's pure and thus it is able to enlighten the eyes. If your eyes are enlightened, what else do you need? If you go to the doctor, you do your eye test and they say, oh, you have 20-20 vision. You say, but look, it's really bad. You know, I want to have better than 20-20. They're going to say, it doesn't work that way, (laughs) right? Your vision is exactly what it ought to be. If your eyes are enlightened... You don't need anything else. Okay? Now, those are just two verses. Two verses from Psalm 19. And I honestly, I think that's enough to demonstrate the sufficiency of Scripture. But let me just go through the rest of the psalm. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Right? Nothing more is needed now. Nothing more will be needed in the future to teach us how to properly live in the fear of God. Which, to live in the fear of God is another way of saying to live in a way that's pleasing to God. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. God's evaluation is always exactly right. He doesn't need a second opinion. His judgments are perfect. They are true. And they are righteous altogether. They always conform with God's standard. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Honestly, when I think about integrationism, I think this is often what's missing. There's almost like there's an attempt to give some sort of service to the Bible, but you don't see this sort of impulse. The, The word of God is more desirable to me than gold. Yes, much fine gold, and it's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. I want that book. That's all I want. It's to be pursued above all else because it is what will satisfy every Christian, the Word of God. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. The Word of God gives us warning signs, directions for how to avoid pitfalls in life. In keeping them, there is great reward. Follow the Word of God. You will be rewarded. Hebrews 11.6 Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You follow his word, you do what he calls you to do, 
That is the path of blessedness and righteousness and joy. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. In other words, the Bible is able to show you where you go wrong. It's the only proper mirror by which you can see yourself. You can't discern your own errors. Maybe you can to an extent, but you need someone else to show you where you've really failed often. The Bible does that. It shows us our errors. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David is a man who understands biblical sufficiency. He understands that in the word he finds something more precious than gold, something that can satisfy him, that can keep him from error, can break the tyranny of enslaving sins. It shows him how to be acquitted of transgressions, teaches him what is going on in his heart, and that it's the most vital. And if he fills his mind, in this last line, if he fills his mind with it, he knows that his behavior will inevitably be the kind of behavior that's pleasing to God. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. David knows that. It's able to keep us from error. Now, of course, you understand there's much more that the Old Testament says about biblical sufficiency. Uh, but I think that'll do for us now. Let's go over to the New Testament. Actually, before we move on there, you guys have any questions about Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Deuteronomy 8, anything I've said so far? In what way? Can you elaborate? Are you saying so we should just be we should be content with this and not go beyond it? Is that what you're saying? Or Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's that's a one way the word of God is able to rejoice your soul, cause you to rejoice with inward contentment and satisfaction. Um, so yeah, I, I, I see, I see you there, brother. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Uh huh. Yeah. So. No. Yeah, integration is a big catch-all term. That's right. Yeah. So thank you for for asking that question. By integration, what I mean is that you would take secular psychologies and soul care methodologies and the Bible and you would integrate them together. That's what I mean. So our view is that the Bible is... So biblical counselors also believe in medication. We believe in science. We believe in all that stuff. Yes. Yes. 
Um, so I'm not talking about I'm not talking about psychotropic medication here. Uh, I, I'm talking about the fundamental philosophy of uh, or methodology of your counseling your counseling methodology. That's what I'm talking about. In your count, bottom line counseling methodology, do you believe the Bible is a sufficient soul care model? And I'm talking about soul care. When I'm talking about soul care, I'm also I'm not talking about um, you know physical medications for organic problems. Right, that's an outer man issue, and that's where I would leave that. Now, I understand that psychotropic medication affects the inner man. That's the way that it that works. But that's a different discussion than what I'm talking about here about biblical sufficiency. So biblical sufficiency, what, what I'm arguing here is that this Bible is a sufficient soul care model. It, it comes to us uh, fully orbed with all we need to know. The next step of that is, okay, well, how do we deal with... How do we deal with um, medication? You know, what do you do if a guy's got a heart problem? Well, the Bible is not going to guide you through the heart surgery process or recommend medication for you. But it's going to help you deal with the heart issue in a way that honors the Lord. You've got a, you've got a um, kidney stone. The Bible doesn't say anything about how to deal with getting the kidney stone out or processing that. But it will help you navigate that trial in a way that's pleasing to him. If the doctor is giving you medication to cope with that, you have the option to do that or not. That's on you. But I would say, look, this is the 21st century. Yeah, you should take some pain medicine if that's what you want to do. Now, when it comes to the discussion about uh, psychotropic medication, that that's a different discussion. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, integration being... Here's the Bible. We need to integrate it with secular psychology soul care models. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, any other questions before we move on? New Testament. New Testament. Matthew 4.4. 4. Very simple. We, all should, we always should ask, what does our Lord say? Jesus' statement. When he was tempted by the devil, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Again, Deuteronomy 8.3. You've got two things. You've got bread. That's what you need. But you also have the word of God. It's sufficient to sustain you, to help you. All right. Now, this is probably the most popular and well-known passage on biblical sufficiency. 2 Timothy 3.16 to 17. So what we'll do is we'll take a minute to walk through this passage together. And by minute, I mean probably 10. All right, and I've, I've sort of block diagrammed it here for you so you can see it, how it lays out. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. All right, that is a a major statement on biblical sufficiency. The scripture is inspired by God. What does that mean? Yeah, it's God breathed. It's breathed out. It means that whenever the scripture speaks, God speaks. So naturally then when God speaks, he doesn't waste words. His words are profitable. 
profitable or useful. What are they useful for? What are God's words profitable for? Well, first, they're profitable for teaching. Because God's word is truth. The Bible is the comprehensive body of truth for life in a fallen world. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's going to, you know, you don't have to go to medical school, just read your Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about inner man soul care issues here. The Bible is the comprehensive source for soul care issues. The Bible defines reality. The Bible tells us what is real, what is true. So it's profitable for teaching, but it's also profitable, useful for reproof. Why? Because it teaches us that God, well, I'll put it a different way. The Bible teaches us the norm for human behavior. Now, is Abraham the norm for human behavior? What about David? See the norm for human behavior? I don't think so. Who is the norm for human behavior? The Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect man. This is the norm for life. The Bible gives us the perfect standard for how every person is to live. We see it lived out perfectly in Christ, but we see it taught all the way through the Old Testament into the New Deviations from God's word are perversions of God's objective standard that are, in fact, sinful. So the word here, reproof, means to state that someone has done wrong. Right? With the implication, of course, that there's adequate proof to show why what they're doing is wrong. That's what reproof is. So it's profitable for teaching Reproof, and then third, correction. Not only does the Bible point out our deviations, tells us what's wrong, but it also shows us what we need to do. It graciously sort of picks us up and directs us back onto God's path. And and on top of that, it, it helps us to have the right attitude as we're getting back onto God's pathway. And then fourth, the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. For training in righteousness. This is the same word used for training children in Scripture. And that's exactly what Scripture does for us. It trains us. It teaches us like a a parent and a child. The Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, forms, shapes, directs us in all the ways that God wants us to be shaped and directed. So it's sufficient to train us. And then look at the last line. This is maybe the the most expressive, clear statement. It says, the purpose for which God has given us this inspired book, so that the man of God may be adequate. Now that feels like an understatement. <laughs> How was your food tonight? I was adequate. What do you guys, I have the NASB. What does the ESV say? Complete. There we go. Well, you know, adequate, complete, call it what you want. The next phrase tells you what he means. Equipped for every good work. 
That's what the Bible does. The Bible is God's inspired, inerrant Word, sufficient Word, and it comes to us and it gives us all we need so that we will be equipped for every good work. Right? Every meaning any conceivable work you can imagine. You can be equipped for it. So I'm going to tell you how to get the kidney stone out. But it will equip you to endure that trial in a way that's pleasing to God. Make sense? Now, you tell me, based on this passage alone, is the Bible sufficient? I think so. I mean, I think clearly God is communicating in His Word that His book, His Bible, is sufficient for us as a soul care model. So, I mean, even in light of that, so that the man of God may be adequate. To say that Scripture is inadequate in any way is to go against what God has said. And then lastly, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That seems very comprehensive to me. If God wanted to make that statement more comprehensive, what could He say? I don't know. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And I mean everything. There's not much more he can say to communicate that I've given you a sufficient word. And it comes, he says, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The true knowledge is that knowledge of Christ, that intimate, actual, true, sufficient knowledge of our Lord. Of course, how do we know about the Lord Jesus? We know about him through his word. So this is, I think, the case for biblical sufficiency from the New Testament and from the Old. This is fast, abbreviated. You can dive deep into these passages. I just wanted to sort of throw them in front of you and give you a little bit of depth. But I've essentially sort of skipped a stone across these key passages. And you guys can go deeper on your own. But I just ask you, is the Bible sufficient? Is it sufficient? Yeah, I mean, it is. What has God said? It would be hard to conceive of a, of a more powerful and transparent and clear way for God to communicate that His Word is sufficient than what He's already done in the Bible. So for us to come along and say, eh, it's just inadequate tool for soul care. We need a, you know, it's a lay-level guide. It's, um, it, it, God wants us to take this book and integrate it with other soul care models because The Bible just sort of gets us close to the mind and heart of God, but it's not really all the mind and heart of God for soul care issues. So we need to mingle, mix it with the secular theories. To say that in light of Psalm 19, Deuteronomy 8, 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3, I mean, to say that just seems to be closing an eye to what God himself is saying. All right? Now let me just say, these guys who take that view, they are in the kingdom of God. They, they, they are trying to do the best they can. Um, so I'm not impugning their motives at all. But I just think they're wrong. We, we think they're wrong. We, we think the Bible is sufficient for soul care uh, for the church, certainly. 
Okay? So here's some takeaways. Number one, Christians do not need anything more than the Word of God and, of course, the Holy Spirit to successfully navigate God's world in a way that is pleasing to Him. Second, in God's Word, Christians have been granted a resource that is sufficient to deal with the inner man issues we face. If you leave this session thinking, oh yeah, these guys think that we don't need medicine, they think that uh, you don't need to go to the doctor, that's not what I'm talking about. Those are outer man issues. We're talking about soul care, inner man, heart issues. The Word of God is sufficient for those. Third, if the Bible is truly sufficient, we must not merely give lip service to its sufficiency, but bring our entire lives and ministries under its rule. If it's perfect and right, like Psalm 19 tells us, if it's God's perfect judgment, if it's His testimony, the witness as to His character and His will for His people, then for us to go out from underneath it, right, to come out here and kind of try to get something and come back under the Word of God, for us to do that is scandalous, really, when God has given us His sufficient Word. We, we must not pay mere lip service to biblical sufficiency. It's not enough to have good, reformed, right, solid theology. That's not enough. You have to not just commit in word that the Bible is sufficient. You have to live your life underneath that sufficient word. And part of counseling is us helping people come underneath, back underneath the word, the sufficient word of God. I have one more. The Bible then gives us a a sufficient model for soul care. All right, that's that's the argument of biblical sufficiency. All right, there's much more to be said, but that's uh, all I have, and it's 4:52. So I I tell you what we'll do. Um, how about are there any questions from anyone? Yes, go ahead. Um, Proverbs 31. Okay. That is an interesting approach. Um, yeah, I, I haven't heard that before, and that's that is really interesting. So I would say probably not, based on the genre of the book of Proverbs. And here's what I mean by that: Proverbs are not promises; um, they are general principles for life. Um, they guide us and they direct us, but they do, they're not guarantees. And, um, even their principles that come to us are just that they're principles. And so here you've got the words of King Lemuel, the Oracle from his mother, right? His mother told him this and, and he said, she says, verse three, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that, which destroys Kings. That's the main idea. You don't give your strength King to women or your ways to that which destroy kings. So there are pathways that a king can walk that will destroy him. 
You don't do that because you're a king. This is kind of like a First Timothy 3 qualification. Pastors are not kings by any means, but it's the same idea. You, you're in leadership, and there's a standard there. Don't give yourself to these ways. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to destroy um, or to desire strong drink. You shouldn't be doing that. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give the strong drink to those who are perishing. Leave it to them. Let the people who are perishing, who whose lives are bitter and falling apart, let them go drink. You don't do that. So it would be, I think, a hermeneutical error because that's kind of the tone, the way that I read that. That's kind of the tone. You're up here. Let the If the people are on the streets or lives are falling apart, let them go live that way. Not you, king. Yeah. 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 And maybe you could make a principle there for sure. But I, I don't know if it's um, we just have to be careful that we're not deriving the right principle from a wrong passage. Certainly, there's there's a little bit of kind of overlap and parallel there. And I see why you're making that observation. I would just be slow on that. Because it's it's kind of like taking the um, like First Corinthians 13, where Paul says, "If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels," and he goes on and on. Well, some people lay on he's being sarcastic, and some people lay on that to that and say, "Look, there there's a language for angelic speech," but that's not what Paul is doing there. Right? He's being sarcastic. He's being hyperbolic. Um, you know, if I speak in these loud, these wonderful ways, but I have not love, I'm nothing. So you just want to make sure when you're in a passage that you're trying to zero in on what the main point is. And to me, it seems like his mom is saying, leave that to these people who are already destroying their lives. You can't do that. Talking about alcohol. When it comes to morphine, when it comes to pain medication, you know, that's a I, it, that becomes a judgment call. But I, you could go to something like this, perhaps, but it's just be a little dangerous. It becomes a wisdom issue, you know, you want it or not. Does that make sense? I hope I, I don't want to evade your question, but well, I, I always want to be careful not to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would just suggest anytime you have a little bit of reservation or hesitation, don't don't do it. Just go to a different passage. Just give them some counsel uh, based on your experience. I mean, I don't mean that saying not biblical counsel, but based on wisdom principles. So anyway, that would be my suggestion there. Any other questions? Well, let me pray for you guys and let you go home four minutes early. Uh, I'll be down here or up here. If you have any questions, you can come talk to me, okay? Father, thank you for your word and thank you, Lord, that it is sufficient for us. It gives us all we need for life and godliness. Help us by your grace to live underneath it and in light of it, Lord, for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.